Just take a few moments and see if you can hear the silence in this hall. Leave it to me to break the silence. (laughs) Things have changed, whether you recognize it or not. Very, very different. Unmistakable. One of the points that we've been trying to make, and it's probably pretty apparent to you, one kind of central message that we want to convey, which is this sense that your life is your practice. Your life is your practice. And that we're, what we're attempting to do is to bring awareness into all aspects of our life, you know, leaving nothing out. Ryan said the other day, everything is worthy. Everything's worthy of our attention. Whether it's activities in the body, whether it's the breathing, how your body feels in that particular moment, different aches and pains or pleasant experiences, energy flowing through the body or the body feeling contracted or tight, all of that is included in the practice. By seeing that, we begin to see the changing nature of the body. We develop insight into the nature of the body. It's the same with the mind. We're not interested here in, in trying to cultivate a particular mental state or a particular emotion, a particular mind state, or, or some particular experience that you can kind of hold on to and take away with you, some peaceful moment that you might have had on the cushion you know, those peaceful moments come, but the practice is much more about bringing awareness into the way the mind works, understanding the nature of the mind, seeing its changing nature, understanding uh, the nature of suffering in the mind, and also the nature of liberation, how liberation comes about. And so much we can, we can learn so much about this by just simply paying attention to the moment-to-moment experience of the mind. We want, also want to bring our practice into the area of relationships. You know, we've talked about that some on retreat. Um, you know, just even though the nature of the retreats are silent, uh, we're still in relationship with each other, and obviously re- relationships provoke certain kinds of reactions in us. Uh, there's a certain dynamic in a group, and there's a lot to learn in relationship, and we'll probably talk more about that right about at the end of the retreat. But obviously that world of relationship is an area of practice, and it's a significant aspect of the practice. It's a significant aspect of our life. You know, even if we live alone, try to live like a hermit, you know, we're still in relationship to other things. We still depend on other beings to provide for us. And so the nature of human existence is really 
that we're in relationship. <coughs> we're also cultivating this awareness, bringing awareness into to our relationship to our environment, you know, to begin to see. Um, how do we relate to our environment? You know, out here in the country, you know, what's it like? What, what, what's our experience of the environment? What happened today when it rained? the experience like? Was there aversion, disappointment, or was there appreciation for the change? So being aware of one's relationship to one's environment, crucial. Not only crucial for you, but crucial for the planet. So tonight I'd like to focus on one significant force in our life, one very tenacious habit of mind that often eludes this field of awareness, this practice that we're engaged in. And yet this habit of mind has a tremendous (coughs) influence. It affects so many. One very tenacious habit of mind, uh, which is fear. So tonight I'd like to talk about including fear in, in this uh, investigative process, in this pro- process of uh, practice. What makes fear such a challenging energy to investigate, to bring practice to? is that our relationship to fear is very, very complex. It's very complex. We all have our own relationship to our own fears. And a lot of our relationship, of course, is conditioned by our past experiences, the kinds of things that we learned along the way. Oftentimes, um, it comes out of family, oftentimes, first. Where your parents deal with certain situations what the family dynamic is, and then we pick it up from our friends and, and schools. And so we all are subject to certain kinds of experiences. And it conditions our relationship to this energy of fear. But for many of us, there's a range. You know, there's a range of relationships, in a sense, on how we often deal with fear. In the, of the many ways that we deal with it, the predominant characteristic is that of aversion. One of the torments of the heart that I spoke about a couple nights ago, this torment of heart of aversion. So often our relationship to this energy of fear or worry or anxiety, so often our reaction to it is one of aversion. So I'd like to go through a few of the um, kinds of ways that aversion expresses itself around fear. And certainly, one of the main ways, and I think this is very predominant in culture in general, um, it's more predominant, I think, with people who haven't been practicing some degree of awareness, and that, of course, is that a lot of the fear is unconscious. You know, and that's because uh, fear can be very threatening, and so we repress it. You know, we push it down. We're often quite unaware of the fears that we experience, and very difficult sometimes to acknowledge when we are frightened. Certainly, I know that was a big part of my conditioning. Uh, as I was 
never really encouraged to express it or to acknowledge it. It was mostly that if I was experiencing it, it was something to be ashamed of or embarrassed of or something that are threatening, and so I needed to put, put it down. One very extreme example of this kind of the nature of how unconscious fear can be actually is in my own life when I first um, began to practice. This was like 1974. I went out to Boulder, Colorado and met Joseph Goldstein. I'd already been sitting for a while, but it really helped begin to focus my practice, uh, having met him and we learning this practice of Vipassana. And then that summer, um, when summer ended, I was on my way out to sit a retreat up in the Northwest and I had a a very kind of carefree, well, I won't say carefree, but I would just say I wasn't working, uh, basically, (laughs) at the time. Uh, Definitely not carefree, but I didn't have a job. And I was kind of saved up a little bit of money and traveling on a shoestring budget. Uh, And I hitchhiked from Boulder to California. And uh, on my way, I decided to stop off and uh, visit some friends who were uh, rock climbers. And and they they were rock climbers, and they were out in Yosemite Valley. I don't know if all of you have been there, but many of you have, I'm sure. Um, Get the sense of what it's like in Yosemite for rock climbers. The cliffs are very, very tall. Um, several thousand feet tall. Um, and I've always had this unconscious fear of heights. You know, I mean, I always was afraid of heights. But, but I, you know, it's sort of like I knew I was afraid of heights, but I never really dealt with it. I just kind of ignored it. And the kind of heights I'm talking about is when you're standing like a, you know, near an edge of a vertical situation. Like if I was on a building and I was near the edge, or even if I was in a room looking out a window that was high up in a building, I would have, you know, be queasy and fearful. But it was unconscious quite a bit. So I hooked up with these old friends of mine, kind of pre-Dharma friends, and they were really intense rock climbers. And of course they wanted me to join them. And so I began to, I started out in these big boulders climbing, and it was really a lot of fun. But then the real thing uh, finally came around, and I, I started climbing with them. And one of my friends, who was a very intense rock climber, very competent, um, invited me on this climb. And he kind of you know, described what it was going to be like, uh, but I, I had really no concept of what it would be like climbing this thing. And he pointed to Half Dome. Um, and Half Dome is 3,000 feet high, which is very tall. Um, and what he thought would be a good idea would be to climb it at night. <laughs> under a full moon. Under a full moon. He thought that would be, really be a wonderful experience for both of us to share. <laughs> this is my introduction to rock climbing, mind you. Uh, so it takes a while, too. It takes, this, this climb was not excruciatingly difficult technically, but it was many, many what they call pitches, which are like about 150 feet each pitch. So it was, it was pretty much like, I don't know how many, 15 to 18, 20, 30, I'm not sure how many, but a lot. Um, so we were on this climb, and of course, you know, we're climbing in the night, the moon is behind us, and I'm climbing, and occasionally I'm looking down. And big mistake. Um, but I was getting, like, tighter 
and tighter as I went along. And then at one point, I kind of lost my grip on the rock and I kind of slid a few feet. And the rope, of course, you know, catches you. And in that moment, I realized something about myself, <laughs> which is, I think I'm really afraid of heights. <laughs> and it took me about 1,500 feet to realize that. You know, I was halfway up probably before I realized, yeah, this is really scary. You know, this is really, really scary. And I remember we dropped something, and we both stopped to listen to, it, to, to see when it would hit the ground, and we couldn't even hear it. You know? It was so far down. Um, so I made it to the top, and even though I realized I was afraid of heights, I still wasn't quite ready to let that in and realized that this really wasn't going to be my thing. You know? I mean, they were very enthusiastic about it, but didn't quite let that idea in that this wasn't going to be one of my hobbies in life. Um, but eventually, it took me a couple more climbs when I realized, not half dome, but smaller climbs, I realized, you know, this just is not any fun at all. Uh, it was because I was basically terrified the whole time I was doing it. So that's being kind of disconnected your fears, disconnected from your, your anxieties. Of course, another strategy in, in our relationship with fear, and all of us, I'm sure, um, we don't have to climb 3,000-foot cliffs to, to realize that we're afraid of heights. Um, another strategy is often that we run away. You know, we avoid the conditions that uh, provoke the fear. And this is so common. It's just a very common strategy. And unfortunately, what it tends to do is it reinforces the fear. It doesn't let us off the hook. It just kind of strengthens the fear. Uh, every time we run away, we get a little, the fear gets a little bit stronger. Another common reaction to fear you know, or anxiety or worry, self-doubt, self-consciousness, is, of course, to judge ourselves for the experience. You know, we've been conditioned to judge ourselves that we shouldn't have this experience. We shouldn't feel anxious. We shouldn't be frightened. You know, we're always telling ourselves, well, you shouldn't be afraid in this situation. You know, it shouldn't be that way. I should be past this fear. I should be over this anxiety. I've been practicing for this long. I shouldn't have this fear, anxiety. I shouldn't be worried about this or that. And so we're constantly telling ourselves things. And, of course, we're telling our things based on our aversion to that particular experience. And sometimes we even go as far as imagining what it would be like to be fearless. What would it be like to be without that energy of fear? Just to kind of fantasize or think about that. And again, that fantasy really doesn't help either. It's kind of discouraging because we still have that fear. We even get afraid of our fears. Very common experience, actually, is when you experience anxiety or fear, it's frightening. And we're actually afraid of the feeling itself. And someone quoted JFK in one of the study groups, uh, one of our discussion groups earlier, I think today, where there's nothing to fear but fear itself. JFK doesn't go quite far enough. You know, I always like that quote, you know, very kind of inspiring in some ways. But what we, don't want to, what we want to do is learn not to be afraid of fear, you know, but to learn, to begin to take a look at it develop a, a new relationship to it.
And so often, again, one of the reasons why fear can be extremely challenging in terms of bringing the practice into it is because we tend to identify. You know, there are certain habits of mind that just seem so solid, so me or mine. You know, when you touch it, it doesn't seem like it's energy. It doesn't seem like it's changing. It seems like that's who I am. That's me. That's my fear. And there's a strong tendency to identify with our fears or our anxiety. Let me go through a few, a list of fears. It points to, I think, the illusion. Uh, the illusion of identification with fear. How, how we tend to claim it as me or mine. And in that claiming, there's a tendency to create a sense of separation. You know, it creates a sense of isolation or disconnection from each other. You know, we're experiencing this fear. We hide it. We identify with it. There's shame, embarrassment, fear about it. And so it cuts us off. And so we tend not to recognize, as we pointed to earlier in the retreat, sort of our shared common experiences. And there are many shared fears. So let me go through the list. Uh, and see if any of these resonate. There's, of course, the fear of pain, both physical and emotional. There's fear of criticism, fear of criticism or uh, being afraid of disapproval, other people's disapproval. You know, we're really afraid of each other a lot, is what it comes down to. Uh, We're fear of uh, others' disapproval. We're, of course, afraid of, our, uh, of being judged, a very common one. And so often many of us are very self-conscious because we're afraid of being judged. You know, we want to make sure we're wearing the right yogi clothes and uh, you know, we walk in an acceptable manner, whatever that might be. But we try to fit in. You know, we're like that chameleon that I think I was looking at outside. Uh, I couldn't see it that clearly. But we try to change you know, and adapt uh, to the environment so that uh, nobody... We want to be noticed, but... Just a little bit, maybe. You know, we want to be noticed maybe in certain ways. Um, so there's a lot of fears about what other people think of us. And that was acute for me growing up. I mean, that was probably one of the most predominant fears I experienced all through school. Just terrorized about what other people would think or say about me. You know, and, and one tends to take that conditioning you know, into adult life. There's, of course, the... Fear of being vulnerable, of being seen. You know, there's a self-doubt that arises when we face challenging conditions. You know, self-doubt doesn't just arise on the cushion when, you know, that wandering mind shows up for ten million time, or the sleepiness keeps going into the seventh day of the retreat, uh, and self-doubt arises. Um, or it, it arises in life. You know, outside of retreats, in all sorts of situations. You know, when we're when our life is in transition. Uh, there's a tremendous fear of the unknown. You know, oftentimes we're not in touch with that fear of the unknown, except during times when we're really aware of change in our life. You know, things are changing. And then we become aware, yeah, I'm feeling really anxious about that job interview. I'm really feeling anxious about money, anxious about this. You know, that fear of change is really quite significant. And underneath that often is this fear of losing control. You know, not being in control, that fear of being powerless. There's also some of the bigger ones, too. I mean, these are big. But, you know, there's a fear of illness, of old age, of death, of course. 
Often, often those fears don't show up until you know, until we get sick or until we start aging, when, we, when our bodies start changing and breaking down a bit. Um, any of these fears? Come <laughs> by any chance? Nobody. Nobody knows anything. I'm talking to myself. I'm of course the only one that has these. I'm sure of that, but just in case. Okay. So fear is a very common phenomena. And yet, somehow in our minds, we play a trick. We think, it, you know, we claim that energy. You know, instead of beginning to see its nature, you know, that, it, that it's, a, it's something that we've, been, we've learned. We've learned to be afraid. You know, it's not something inborn. We've learned to be afraid of these different situations. We've been educated to be afraid. So what's called for is cultivating a new relationship to this energy, a fundamentally new relationship, which is what practice allows us to do. Practice gives us this capacity to work with fear, to investigate its nature, and to let it go. Rilke says, what is required of us is that we love the difficult and learn to deal with it. In the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. In the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. What Rilke is saying here is that we need to deal with the difficult but we need to bring love to that particular experience. We need to learn how to love the difficult. And that sounds like a big job, and it is. But we all have the capacity to do that because we have this innate love and this innate capacity to be mindful, which is this completely open-hearted attention this non-judgmental, friendly, open, loving attention. And so when we begin this process of bringing mindfulness to our bodies and minds, and when we encounter this energy of anxiety or worry or fear, the first step in discovering a new relationship to that energy is by bringing mindfulness to it. What we're developing here is this ability to respond to what we encounter in our lives with wisdom, with compassion. The first step is really to be present. To be present, to be here right now. And to pay attention in an open-hearted way to what your experience actually is. Not what your experience should be or could be, shouldn't be, but what it is, what it actually is. In other words, what's arising now? As we begin to develop a capacity to acknowledge in an open, honest way exactly what our experience is, 
which of course is what mindfulness allows us to do, not only do we develop this ability to acknowledge our experience, we also begin to become more mindful of how we're relating to that experience. We begin to see that when we, when we encounter something unpleasant, something in the environment, something in our bodies or minds, something in the building, something in the schedule, whatever it might be that might be unpleasant, um, there's often a reaction to it. And so the mindfulness is not just on the unpleasant feeling of that experience or the awareness of that, but it's also that we begin to get to know ourselves very well in this practice. can't escape knowing yourself, um, vipassana. So it's all about seeing how are we relating to these experiences in our life. Always taking a look at not just the condition that you find yourself in, not just the situation that you find yourself in, not just the body that you have, but what you're doing with that body, what you're doing with that mind. How are you reacting, responding to the situations that you find yourself in? Why mindfulness is so effective in beginning to understand or investigate the nature of our experience is that mindfulness allows us to actually go into the present moment with that quality of fresh attention. It's why we emphasize fresh attention so much. So much is because it allows us actually to experience what we're experiencing right now in, in a fundamentally new way. In other words, we can, we're connecting to the present moment. It allows us to experience the present moment fully, not through the past, not through our past conditioning, not through all these preconceptions that we might have. And so mindfulness allows us to do that with the energy of fear also. You know, meeting it with fresh attention. What a challenge. It's such a challenge because we've built up all sorts of ideas about fear, all sorts of ideas about ourselves in fear. So mindfulness is that key. It allows us to uh, let that go. Let the history go. Let all those ideas go and just see into the nature of fear. See what it feels like. See what that experience is like. See what our relationship to it is. Are we judgmental? Are we condemning ourselves? Do we want it to go away? Are we attached to it in some way? Do we identify with it? have to ask these questions. All we have to do is pay attention and we'll see. But sure, sometimes we do all of those things. And so we begin to learn about how fear uh, arises in our lives and how it expresses itself and what we do in relationship to it. How it conditions the choices and decisions that we make. I've been using this word investigation a lot. I want to say just a little bit about what it means because it can mean different things, uh, different traditions, different contexts. In the context in which I'm using it, um, what it means is the silent, sustained attention. It's open, silent, open, silent meaning open, non-judging, no preconceptions. The silent, sustained attention on the experience that we're having. For many of us, uh, we've developed investigative tools. You know, we've 
And, and usually that's, of course, the thinking mind. And for many of us in this culture, um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time trying to figure things out. You know, we're very good at problem solving, analyzing, thinking. And of course, we apply those skills to you know, the sources of our suffering too. For instance, if we have anxiety or if we, if we know, we know enough about ourselves, we're mindful enough to know that we're, we feel a lot of anxiety, we worry a lot, um, that we have a lot of self-consciousness or self-doubt, we're afraid of a lot of different kinds of things, maybe we have some phobias, you know, things that we're very aware of. And oftentimes we'll try to investigate them by thinking about them, trying to perhaps identify the source, or trying to figure out a strategy of working with them so that maybe we don't have to experience it anymore. And the problem with that c- approach to investigation is that it's, it's colored. It's uh, colored by um, judgments. It's colored by our aversion to the experience. And mostly the, the goal or the intention or the motivation for that investigation is to try to get rid of the experience. We don't like it, and you know we can go through all sorts of hoops in order to try to understand what its source is. And and I've seen this over and over again talking to people is that oftentimes we can identify exactly why we're afraid. We can go back to that experience when we were two and a half years old. Somebody did something bad to us, which often happens, and there's a fear that comes out of that. We can know that. We can know exactly why. We can even know what we're doing. Kind of like we can know that we're afraid and that we're making choices based on fear. And that level of knowing, sometimes it's definitely helpful. But a lot of times it's not in terms of letting go of that fear, in terms of seeing some transformation, some more freedom in the mind. And in fact, sometimes knowing the reason, I've talked to many people, knowing why, you're experiencing fear, and still experiencing it creates a lot of frustration in the mind. Because we think if we know the reason why, we won't experience it anymore. And so it's not that thinking about things or analyzing or figuring out can, is, is, can not, be a, not be a useful way to investigate, but there needs to be awareness first. There needs to be an allowing, open-hearted attention first. We need to develop the capacity to actually be with the experience first. Then we can begin to trust the thinking about the experience because now we're not so conditioned to move away from it or to try to get rid of it. We just simply want to understand it. And that's the whole motivation in the kind of investigation I'm talking about. It has nothing to do, when I talk about investigating fear, it has absolutely nothing to do with getting rid of fear. It has only one intention is to understand it, is to learn, to see into its nature. It's seeing the truth that liberates. That's the Buddha's message. So if we see the truth in fear, if we see its true nature, we're liberated from it. We don't suffer. Getting rid is not a useful strategy. This investigative process in the Buddhist frame is described as satipanya in the Pali language. And that's the coming together of mindfulness and wisdom. It is the coming together of this 
quiet, silent attention of mindfulness and wisdom, which is discernment, seeing into the nature of the experience, understanding the nature of the, the experience itself, seeing how it expresses itself, seeing the suffering in the experience itself, and also seeing where liberation comes from. So this practice of investigation, that's where it goes. So it's bringing together these two qualities of sati and panya. When we begin to pay attention in a more sustained way, which is exactly what this retreat is all about. This retreat is designed, all the conditions here, yes, they are definitely not everyday, ordinary life experience necessarily. Um, But the conditions are meant to encourage this sustained looking at our experience. And when we develop this ability to sustain our attention, this is really apparent in the group uh, discussions, so apparent in the group discussion, is uh, that we begin to uncover things. We begin to uncover and and see underneath the surface. Uh, We begin to make discoveries. So investigating... Here. Let's talk about a few different ways to do that. In the Thai forest tradition, investigation is highly valued. It's really, in some ways, that's what the meditation is. It's a satipanya, mindfulness and investigation, sustained attention. And it can, there can be a lot of intensity uh, around this investigation. Uh, maybe sometimes a little too much intensity. But that's the spirit. The spirit is really looking deeply into your experience, not moving away from it, staying with it. One way of beginning to look into the nature of fear, and this was a practice that was taught to me. I spent a month in a Thai forest tradition, and this practice was taught to me. It was a practice I'd never really done before. I never kind of understood that this was possible. I never thought of it. Which was to uh, investigate the physical expression of fear, the physical nature of fear. How does it express itself in the body? And to actually stay focused on that aspect of the experience. In other words, not to get caught in thinking about why or how or not even get you know, really restraining in some ways that desire to, to figure it out or to think about it or to uh, even be mindful a lot of the thoughts that were coming up. You know, there would be an awareness of the thought, but then immediately one would focus on the physical sensations themselves. In other words, one would acknowledge, mindful that, that you know, fear is in, in one. Uh, and then one would observe it in the body itself. And I found this to be just an incredibly powerful practice. It was kind of painful to do it, though. I mean, it wasn't such an easy practice because it, one kept getting in touch with the painfulness in the body, the kind of contracted nature of pain. You know, pain has certain characteristics. Uh, it expresses itself in certain ways. This kind of energy of fear expresses itself in a lot of different ways. It's, it expresses itself in the body, certainly. Uh, it's uncomfortable. The body contracts. You know, many of us, sometimes when I'm teaching the, uh, this fear practice group, we'll go through a whole array of different physical sensations that arise. 
uh, at different times for fear. Some of us are different than others. You know, but the hands, the heart, the chest, the stomach, the eyes, the face, the mouth, uh, the shoulders, um, all of those areas can be affected by that energy of fear. And so by observing the sensations, insight arises. One, insight into the nature of how fear expresses itself, but also if you pay attention to the body long enough, one begins to see that it changes. One begins to see that it's energy, unpleasant feelings that are changing in the body. One moment it's here, another moment it's here, another fear rises to something else, and then expresses itself in a different way. Maybe there's less fear, and so it's subtle. It might just be in the eyes. And for me, like I said, I was, I'm not sure if I said this, but I grew up with a lot of fear. And, and, and to me, a big part of the process of uh, my, pro- my process of practice has been looking at fear, investigating it, taking a look at it, working with it in different ways. And of course, when I was in this monastery, there were lots and lots of opportunities uh, to look at that energy. Especially what, what the physical arrangements where we would be in a kuti, you know, pretty pretty alone. You know, I mean, there was a kuti not hundred feet away, but I was in a foreign country, never been to Thailand before, out in the middle of the forest, and then you know that thing that we talked about earlier—that sinking feeling when it starts getting dark. Uh, I had that really big time too. You know, I mean, when it started getting dark, I just really dreaded it. And every day, just before it got dark, this little rat would come running by me when I was sitting, almost exactly at the same time every day. And so it was part of my practice. I'd get ready for this rat. And I still got afraid every time it would come scampering by, we'd hang out for a second or two, and disappear again. Um, And so working with that. At night, seven, eight, nine, ten, later, all the, you know, this is a pretty deep forest in a way. Lots and lots of sounds. You know, people might think the jungle forest slash forest is a quiet place. Anything but. You know, just tons of animals and creatures. And um, you know, there were stories when Mahabua, who was the uh, teacher at this particular monastery, founder of this particular monastery. The stories when he was practicing, like maybe. The 1930s, somewhere around there, sure, when he was a young man um, practicing. And there was this very famous story, I'll get to it in a minute, but anyway, there were stories where he would encounter tigers in this particular forest. What I encountered were wild chickens. <laughs> anyway, these chickens that escaped from the nearby village made residence in the forest. And they would fight at night. You know, they would just rattle around and scratch around and fight with each other. And it would scare the hell out of me. You know? <laughs> I mean, it'd be quiet and elves would... <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm looking around. You know, very unsettling, these chickens. Very, very unsettling. Like I said, I'm a scaredy cat. What can I say? <laughs> So I watched my body through that. That was my practice for the entire month. Essentially, was to be just the rest of my body. So every time something would happen, I would look at the physical sensations. 
You know, sometimes it was the 4th of July. There was like tons of stuff going on in there. Other times it was quiet, settled. But I could begin to see this relationship between the emotional and the physical. And I, and I began to get a sense of not identifying. That was the beauty of that particular practice, is there's a strong tendency to identify with the thoughts or the reactions we have or the fear. But to actually see it on a physical level, there's less identification with it. You see it physically, the sensations themselves. And so one could get a sense of the process nature of that energy, coming through, expressing itself, and passing away. Coming through, expressing itself, passing away. Coming through, expressing itself, passing away. Over and over again, in so many different ways. Unpredictable ways, surprising ways, subtle ways. I began to get a sense that there was this energy. That fear was an energy. It wasn't me. It wasn't mine. And in that space, I, I started feeling a lot more freedom around it. And I could feel that the fear would still arise. The chickens would rattle and I'd still have a reaction. But the reaction wouldn't last as long. And I also began to feel much less burdened by that reaction. It wasn't as much suffering. It wasn't triggering as much. There's a little bit more equanimity around it, a little bit more openness to experiencing it. So that's a practice sometime that you might um, try sometime in your practices. Is you don't have to go to a Thailand or go to a forest or any of that. I mean, all you have to do is walk down the street or at work or go to a meeting or you know, Monday, your first day in the job, uh, you know, whatever it might be. There might be a little bit of anxiety and nervousness. You know, feel it in the body. Feel it in the body. See how it, how it expresses itself. Oh, my God. I just realized it's 8 o'clock. <laughs> Mother of God. Okay. Ah. <laughs> and I've been on her case for doing that, too. <laughs> Narayan's been running over and I puts the interviews back. Uh, so we're going to wrap this up in about seven minutes. <laughs> it can be done. Uh, well. Um, so another, pro- another way to investigate, very, very helpful, extremely helpful in daily life, is to begin to, this process of self-knowing that we've been talking about, getting to know yourself in relationship to fear. And what that means is to begin to see the conditions that it arises in. Get to know very well, in a very intimate way, exactly what conditions give, give rise to fear. You know, we're, we're, I talked about a lot of common fears, but different conditions pick, bring up those, diff, those different fears. In all of us, our karma is different that way. Our training is different. Our past experiences are different. Some people love to be in the limelight. People, some people dread it. I mean, people are very different in terms of how we relate to the conditions that we meet. So get to know yourself that way. Take it on as a practice. It's an enlightening practice to begin to just say, oh yeah, I feel afraid when... Uh, I leave a retreat. You know, I go home and I'm, I'm afraid of what's going to happen coming up next. Or I'm afraid when I go to work on Monday. Or I'm afraid when I uh, you know, go walking out at night. 
you know, whatever the experience is, you know, somebody says something to you and, and fear arises, acknowledge it. Begin to get a sense of uh, what conditions bring it up. You know, begin to see, in other words, begin to see its conditional nature. It helps a lot because we take it so solid. You know, I'm a fearful person, but that's not true for anybody here. Sometimes you experience fear and sometimes you don't. The, the nature of fear is that it changes. It may arise in a repetitive way under similar conditions. Speaking in public, every time you have to do that, fear might arise. But it's a new moment in time. It's experienced in a certain way, and it disappears. But it does arise under sometimes very repetitive conditions. But we take that as a sign that that's who you are, that that's my fear. So beginning to see the conditional nature is a way of seeing the impermanent nature of it, not to identify with it so much. Sometimes when we begin to open to fear and anxiety, and this happens quite a bit on retreat, you know, as things are uncovered, you know, as we begin to work with the mind in such a direct uh, way, things get uncovered. And uh, fear, we see how fearful we might be, or how anxious we are. Uh, and it's very easy to be quite overwhelmed, not just on retreat, but in d- everyday life too. And to me, one of the most useful ways that the metta practice can be used is to bring the mind into balance. When one is feeling anxious or worried or fearful, if there's a tenacious feeling of anger or self-judging, metta, that's its function. The Buddha taught metta as an antidote to fear, to help not so much to get rid of your fear, not to try to cut it out of you, but more to bring the mind into balance so that it can hold that energy, so that it can relate to it in a more investigative way, in a more open-hearted way. And so the metta practice is extremely useful for cultivating more calm in the face of very intense habits of mind like fear. Sometimes one of the most useful things that we can do is to nurture that calming before we take a look at something, before we investigate it in a sustained way, if we find that we're really out of balance, to try to bring the mind a bit more into balance, to shift that relationship to ourselves in that uh, energy that we're encountering. So the metta practice is very, very helpful uh, for cultivating that calm that allows the mind to begin to investigate, take a look at our experience. So when we, be, when we begin to develop this capacity to be with all aspects of ourselves, including fear, including self-judging, including feelings of shame or embarrassment in relationship to fear, whatever the reaction might be to the fear, as we develop this capacity to be more mindful of that energy of fear and more mindful of all the things that get triggered and provoked uh, in relationship to fear, uh, things begin to change. Things begin to change. Our conditioning begins to change. Our reactions begin to soften. We begin to just taste a bit more spaciousness. And of course, in working with any of the habits of mind, one of the most crucial, crucial qualities that we want to cultivate, and I can't emphasize this too much in terms of working with this one, is is patience and perseverance. 
And so often we slide into resignation when it comes to our habits. We get discouraged because we've seen it over and over again a million times. And we slide into resignation. And that, of course, just reinforces the suffering. It reinforces that energy. It reinforces our identification with that. It gets in the way. And gradually the conditioning changes. You begin to let go of the judgments. You begin to let go of the self-hatred or the shame that's connected to all these different sides of ourselves, all these different fears that we're hiding from ourselves and others. The light of awareness begins to make its way in to those corners. We begin to taste that freedom, that relaxation. The relaxation not that comes from escaping, our fears are getting rid of them, but the relaxation that comes from having encountered them and work with them, maybe humbled by them at times, but continue to keep working with that. The irony in, in the work itself and the irony in, wor- in the work with fear is that the more allowing we are of the experience itself, and that's what it requires, the more allowing, the more intimate we become with the experience. And the more intimate we become with the experience, the more we let it go. The more we let it go. We let go of the source of our suffering. But we have to know it. And that, of course, just requires us to look. Okay. So let's just a minute of sitting. So thank you. Please, please enjoy the silence. The silence is hard-earned. So keep the practice going and keep coming back to the present, and you'll notice the silence. You'll feel it. Rest in it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.